actually after the singing song service to be able to have the kids church over there. But today we're going to be having you here with us. And it's a wonderful thing to see families worshiping the Lord together. But go ahead. Hey, you don't have your Bibles on. You do. That's all right. And tell your friend. But you know that being a Christian is kind of like being a pumpkin. Have you ever thought of it that way? Do you like the pumpkin? How are you like it? Yeah, the treasure chest, I have coins in there, and um, if you didn't get them yet, we'll have Daniel. Can you go get the notes on the table, sermon notes for kids? I, I didn't get one. Yeah, we're going to make sure you get one. And um, and you fill that out during the message later today, the regular message. You fill that out, turn that in, you'll get a coin, and then you'll be able to turn that coin in and get a tree out of the treasure chest. Sound like fun? Yeah. Yeah, so make sure you guys pay attention to the message, all right, and you take good notes. But being a Christian is kind of like being a pumpkin. You know, the Bible says, Jesus said this, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit shouldn't remain. That whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And so you're like, God picks you, just like you go and pick out a pumpkin out of a pumpkin patch. You know what? God in his infinite love has picked us. We love the Bible says we love him because he first loved us. And so because God loved us, Jesus died for us. But Jesus chose us first, and that he chose to die for us. And so he like picked you. Why he picks a pump? Why he would make a pumpkin out of a pumpkin patch? And unlike us, yeah, usually when we go up pumpkin patch with you, what kind of pumpkin do you try to get? We try to get the big, right the big right ones. All right, the ones that are perfect, huh? The ones that are a little bit clean, huh? The ones that look clean, as clean as it goes from the dirt. Oh, yeah, a little one? Well, hopefully we'll yeah, get can, one here, you too. Can hold it on one hand. Wow, that is impressive. I can almost do this with one hand. Yeah. 
Yeah, we all learn new share, huh? You know what? We sometimes do things wrong to our brother and sister, and sometimes they do things wrong to us. But that's where we want to ask Jesus to forgive us of our sin and help us, okay? The Bible says, No one is that our old man is crucified with him, that a body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now, what do you do after you scoop all this stuff out of a pumpkin? You carve it. And you know you carve a smiling face? And you know what? God wants to put a smiling face on us. You know, the Bible says, My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing unto thee, and my soul which thou hast redeemed. And so, you know, God wants our lips to rejoice. He puts a smiling face on us. And then what do you do? What do you do after you carve it out? You put a candle in it. You put a candle in it. And the candle has what? It has light on it. It has light. And see, so you know what? God wants to put his light inside of you. The Bible, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So God wants to put his light in you. So now we see how Christians are kind of like a pumpkin. Right? God picks us out of the patch. God takes dirty pumpkins and he'll wash them. That's what you'll often have to do is wash the pumpkin. He'll scoop the yucky stuff out. He'll put a smiley face on you and put his light in you. Thank you for being so good. You guys should go ahead and go back and have a seat and um, get a sermon note. There's only two. Okay, Jamie, can you make or we need pop though? Everyone else got them? Okay, anybody that doesn't have them, he has two more. <laughs> we'll let you see in that after service, okay? Okay, so you guys take good notes, and you turn those notes in, and you guys will get a coin, okay? Get a coin, and then this coin helps you get something out of pastor's treasure chest. We'll get it after church, okay? So you be good, take good notes, and then we'll get it to you.
open your Bible to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And children are such a blessing, amen. They bring joy to me, amen. Let's see. John, John chapter 4. In verse 1, it says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again in New Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sichar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a, wo there cometh a woman of Samaria for the Jews... Uh, to draw water. Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away in, unto the city to buy meat. Then saved the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? Samaria. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me the drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that says thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worship in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour come of and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is the spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah is come of, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Azariah, can you please give me a cup of water? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And this illustration of in here of you being a great friend. That you were a friend to this Samaritan woman when no one else would be. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you would bless this message and give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Now during this time, actually for several centuries, there was tension 
between the Samaritans and the Jews. On his return to Galilee, the Bible says Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Now, it was not a geographic necessity for Jesus to go through Samaria. Um, it's not that that compelled him to do so. Um, there were lots of different roads that would lead um, to Galilee um, on, to, on his way to his trip. There was the road through, um, for, the road through Samaria was a shorter trip. But there was also the coastal road and also the road on the east side. And many times during religious festivals of the Jews, some of the Jews would travel through Samaria because it was a shortcut and it wasn't as busy as everywhere else. The strict Jews, though, would not even go through Samaria. They, they viewed the Samaritans as an unclean people. They had tension with them, and they did not want to have any dealings with them. So they would usually go the longer route to get to where they needed to go. They preferred to be defiled by a lesser evil, so to speak, where they would go through the Gentile regions on the East Bank, where even Gentiles were considered unclean. And technically, the Gentiles were considered more unclean but to the, in the Jews' eyes, the Samaritans were more unclean because it was a mixture of Gentile and Jew. And they despised the people. Jesus could have easily gone the other ways as it was custom. But the Lord was compelled to pass through Samaria and stop in a certain village. Not as a shortcut, but because he had a divine appointment. The bitter rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans had been going on for centuries, since the fall of the northern kingdoms to the Assyrians. In 2 Kings 17, verse 23, it says, Until the Lord remove Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants the prophets, so was Israel carried away out of their own land, to Assyria unto this day. And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sephrium and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And so that's where these people were being put into Samaria. And so the foreign non-Jews would then end up getting intermarried with the population of Jews who had not been deported, and then it formed a mixed race, which then became known as the Samaritans. And the new settlers brought their idolatrous religion with them. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 17. And that became intermingled with the worship of Jehovah. And that's where wherever you see prohibitions against intermarriage, it's not talking about interracial marriage. It's talking about um, people with false gods intermingling marrying, or, or those that follow the one true God intermarrying with those that serve false gods and false idols. You see in Jesus' own lineage, you have... Um, um, Boaz and Ruth. Boaz being a Jew. Ruth being a Gentile. Get in Mary. Okay? Because you know Ruth said, they know that your God will be my God. That she was going to follow Jehovah God. And so nowhere in the Bible does the Bible ever teach that racial inter or intermarrying of different races is sin. We all come from Adam and Eve. We are all come from mankind. We're all of the humankind. We're the, of the human race. But it was to be an unequally yoke of people, followers of God, with those that did not follow God. And so, in time, however, the Samaritans abandoned their idols and started to worship Jehovah God in their own way. And in their own fashion. 
Um, for example, they accepted the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, while the rest of the Jews would accept the entire Old Testament. They would accept um, the, the law, the first five books, the Psalms, and the prophets. But the Samaritans didn't. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible as being authentic. And the, and the, the, the Samaritans would worship God at Mount Gerizim, whereas the Jews would worship God in Jerusalem. When the Jewish exiles returned to Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah, their first priority was to rebuild the temple. Professing loyalty to Israel's God. Go, go ahead and turn to Ezra. Ezra is one of those hard ones to find. Ezra chapter 4 in verse 1. My pages are sticking today. How about yours? He's getting stuck. Ezra 4 says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of captivity built the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esedadachon, king of Asher which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus the king of Persia hath commanded us. And so the Jewish people said, No, you're not going to have anything to do with our God and build in him a temple. It would be defiled if you had a part. And so they shut them out and said no. And in verse 4 it says, Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus king of Persia until, even until the reign of Darius king of Persia. Okay, so the Jews, again, they're wanting to build the temple. The Samaritans said, let us help. The Jews said, no, we're not going to have a part in it. And so then that started to bring that tension, that rivalry against one another, that the Samaritans hated the Jews, and then they rose up against them and tried to frustrate them building the temple. They caused them problems. And they were rebuffed in their attempt to worship at Jerusalem. So the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, about 400 B.C. The Jews later destroyed that um, temple in between the time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was like 400 years of silence. During that time, the Jews destroyed the temple the Samaritans had built. And so that just caused the relations between the two groups to get worse. There's always this tension. After centuries of mistrust, there was a deep animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. As one writer expressed the contempt the Jews felt for the Samaritans, claiming that God detested the Samaritan people, that he referred to them as the stupid or foolish people living at Shechem. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day manifested the same prejudice. When they wanted to insult Jesus, the worst they could do was call him a Samaritan. And we know he wasn't one. In John 8, 48, it says, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil. 
That was their way to insult Jesus, to try and insult them. Say, oh, you're a Samaritan. So understand, be a Samaritan would not be a good thing when you're in the company of the Jewish people. Now, the Samaritans, of course, felt the same way about the Jews. This was illustrated when one of their villages refused to receive Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. Remember, Samaritans didn't worship in Jerusalem. But because Jesus was going to Jerusalem, they would not let him come into their city at this time. Jesus, in speaking to this woman, comes and talks to this woman at the well, at Jacob's well. And Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Now this wasn't being said in the sense of, You give me a drink now, woman. That's not the context of how I was doing. This was more, she was shocked that he asked for her a drink. And so it says, then say, in verse 9 of John 4, it says, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She's shocked. She's like, what in the world is going on? That here is a Jewish man, and not only talking to a Samaritan, but talking to a woman. In this day, oftentimes it was customary for the men not to speak with the woman in their culture in public. Many times even including their own wife when they were in public. Jesus the great liberator of women. You know, the feminist movement you see today, that just puts them in bondage. But Jesus is the one that set women free. That in Christ Jesus, that there's neither male nor female. We are one in Christ Jesus. And yes, God has given us distinct roles as men, as women, as husbands and wives. But that is not differences in worth or value. But simply in roles. So the Lord's reply... Turns it ends up turning the tables on her, though. That he says, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. He turned the tables. First, he was the thirsty one, and she the one with the water. Now he spoke as if she were the thirsty one, and he was the one with the water. The living water that he offered her was salvation in all its fullness, including the forgiveness of sin. And so the woman, not understanding that he's shifting to the spiritual, he says, the woman said, um, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank there of himself and his children and his cattle? Are you greater than Jacob? You know, we often do that. You know, in human nature, we'll look at the past. We'll look back. You know, even with our friendships. Sometimes we'll get discouraged. We'll be like, you know what, man, I don't have any friends today like I had when I was younger. There are people that in another state, somewhere else, I was close to them. I don't have anyone close now. It's we're always looking at the back. And there's nothing wrong with looking at the past and remembering those friendships and talking to them on the phone. But we should never let that hinder us from having great friendships and relationships with new people. Yes, it's easier to be friends with people we grew up with. But let's get to know new friends. You know, the same thing in the life cycle of a church. Many times churches will get guilty of remembering the glory days, the days of the past. You know, I was talking to a lady um, she, um, just a couple of days ago, and she plans on coming here to visit sometime soon. But she talked about under one of the pastors here that the church had about 250 people here. Now, um, talking to that pastor was more like 150, but a lot more than we have here today. 
And you know, those are good memories to so remember those revivals and remember that. And that was before a lot of the mega churches that are um, in the area down the road and stuff. But those are good to remember those days. But let's not think that God can't do that again today. That God could revive this church to revitalize it. To revive this church. Because you know what? Jesus was someone that was greater than Jacob. And she even said a greater than Solomon is here. And so she didn't realize who she was talking to yet. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. If you drink of this well, you're still going to be thirsty again. And she wanted to find out where does this living water come from that he's speaking of. How could I not have to come down here every day to get water? To come in the hot desert to go get water. And so she wanted to know. And he goes, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into, into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus says, Go call thy husband and come hither. Go call thy husband. And come hither. The woman does not appear to have been clear on the matter of the spiritual transformation that Jesus is talking about yet. Jesus had spoken to her about the water of eternal life. She seemed willing to accept it. She wanted it. But no conditions had been stated yet. It's with any lost sinner. This woman needed to understand two crucial things before she could receive the living water of eternal life. The reality of her sin. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that thou saidest truly. Jesus is bringing her sin before unmasking her sin. She saw the reality of her sin. The second thing that was needed to understand for salvation is that Jesus is the identity, or his identity as Savior. So while Jesus commented on her truthfulness of saying that who she is now with is not her husband, he noted by pulling out that she, 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 was, she wasn't married now. You know, there's a teaching out there that sometimes teachers say, you, you don't need a wedding, wedding you, or you don't um, need to get legally married, that if you just live together, God considers you married. It's not true. If that was true, there would be nothing such as fornication. If just living together meant you were married. No, the Bible says abstain from fornication. We see Jesus attends the wedding at Canaan. Now, it doesn't have to be a big wedding, but it needs to be a covenant, an actual covenant that Jesus is recognizing that this man who she's with now is not her husband, that they are not married simply because they're shacking up together. But she had had five husbands. And so she was looking, we look at this woman, you look at her life, what she's gone through, what she's going through. But she was always looking for a friend in all the wrong places. She followed after her heart instead of seeking God. Her sin and discontentment kept her from any lasting relationship. She lived in the pleasure of the flesh. She had a loneliness, even though she had had five husbands over her life and now with another man. Yet she was lonely. She was empty. Her life had a void. Having been convicted of her sin and the need for forgiveness, the woman wondered where she should go to meet God. And then that deals with the location of worship. 
that, that she, she says, our fathers worship in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem. So now she's wanting, it appears, to get right with God. You know what? Where do I go? Is it in the mountain, like the Samaritans teach us? Or is it in Jerusalem, like the Jews teach? Her commitment highlighted, again, one of their major points of contention between the Jews and the Samaritans. Both believed that under the Old Covenant, God directed His people to worship Him in a specific locations. The Samaritans, again, only accepting the first five books of the Bible, is canonical, is inspired, chose Mount Gerizim. It was nearby Shechem, and that was where Abraham first built an altar to God. And it, went, and it was from the mountain that the Israelites proclaimed the blessings of obedience to God's commandments. The Jews, accepting the entire Old Testament canon, recognized that God had chosen, ultimately, Jerusalem to put His name there to be worshipped. And so now Jesus' reply was basically to say, both places are irrelevant. It's not in the location. It's not in the place. He goes, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet worship in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Both in that Jesus the Messiah was a Jew, and then from him salvation would be offered to the Gentiles, Samaritans, to all. He said, God, the hour come now is true worship shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Jesus' point was that the new covenant renders all external ceremonies and rituals, whether Jewish or Samaritan, obsolete. That it wasn't in the external um, nature of the religion. That worship must be internal. It must be from the heart. It must be from within the spirit. And with truth calls for the heart to worship to be consistent with what scripture teaches. The worship of neither the Samaritans nor the Jews could be characterized as being in spirit and in truth. Both focus on the outward ceremonies and on the pride of being religious. But the time had arrived that the Messiah had come when true worshipers would no longer be identified by where they worship. True worshipers are those that worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now at this time, there was great anticipation of the Messiah. The anticipation of the Christ to come for the Jewish people and even the Samaritans. They were looking forward to it. The hope of the Messiah lies in the heart of the Old Testament. From Genesis 3 to Malachi 3. That you see Jesus, not by name, but prophesied. It's the Messiah that would be to come. The law, the Psalms, the prophets all make predictions about this Jesus. As the generations of Israel became familiar with these prophecies, they took God's promises to heart. They waited eagerly year after year for their coming Savior. Their, their sense of expectation only increased as the centuries passed. By the time of Jesus' birth, they were ready. They were waiting. But then the unthinkable happened. The Messiah came, but the religious leaders of Israel rejected him and had him murdered. Jesus brings up to the woman, calls God Father, to worship the Father. Oh, well, well, this is significant. Because everyone did not refer to God as Father. But here there is a relationship that is being implied. Now Jesus clearly identifies him as the Messiah. The woman said unto him, I know that Messiah is coming, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. 
Now she's like, I don't understand everything that you're telling me, um, but I know some of the things we're talking about. When the Messiah comes, he is going to tell us all about it. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Wow. Man, Smith. She had no idea. She realized he was a prophet. But now, the man that had just asked her for a drink of water, she now realizes this is the Messiah that was prophesied to come, starting all the way from Genesis. And he's talking with me. She already was surprised at him being a Jew, talking to a Samaritan. But now for this to be the Messiah, the Christ that was prophesied to come, the woman's reaction to Jesus following strongly suggests that she embraced Him as Lord and Savior and that she went out to the city and told all the men that the Christ has come. That the Messiah is come. But her conversion is not the main point of this passage. The central truth here is Jesus' revelation of Himself as the Messiah. He had already been revealed as the Son of God at His baptism. People realize, wow, when John preached that this is the Son of God, this is the Lamb to take away the sins of the world. But to actually completely say in his own words, I am the Messiah. No one had yet heard it yet. And notice, he revealed it to a non-peer Jew. It wasn't to the religious leaders. He chose to reveal himself to an obscure, despised, and immoral Samaritan woman. You compare Jesus' encounters with the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus, which was mentioned in John 3. Nicodemus was a devout religious Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a master, a ruler in Israel. She was an immoral Samaritan woman. He was a learned theologian. She was uneducated peasant woman. He recognized Jesus as a teacher sent by God, and that he said no man could do these miracles except he be sent from God. She had no clue who he was. She never saw him do a miracle. Nicodemus was wealthy. She was poor. He was a member of the social elite of Israel. She was the trash of Samaritan society. An outcast among outcasts. Since the Jews regarded all Samaritans as unclean, she was considered especially unclean being an immoral woman. The religious couldn't stand it. They condemned Jesus for being a friend to sinners. In Luke 7.34, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and he say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a winebibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Jesus was despised for being a friend to sinners. For seeking to save that which was lost. To seek those that seem at their wits end. That have no hope. That are consumed with addictions or, or consumed with sin. And Jesus came to minister to them. Jesus' revelation of himself to this woman demonstrated that God's grace and saving love knows no limitations. It transcends all barriers of race, nationality, gender, etc. That Jesus chose to make himself known as the Messiah in his own words first, not only to a Samaritan, but to a woman, which was an affront to Israel's religious elite. He ended up rejecting him even when he revealed himself to them. Now the Bible says a man that has friends must show himself friendly. And there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And Jesus is that friend. Jesus is that friend that's willing to stick closer than a brother. A true friend loves even when they know all the mistakes you've done. 
Jesus knew of all this woman's sins. And yet He still showed her love and offering her the water of life. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. John 15, 13 says, Greater love have no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Greater love have no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that is what Jesus did for us. That when He died on Calvary's cross, that He was laying His life down for sinners whom He considered His friends. People that He would die for on their behalf. He said, Ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I have command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, but for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. That Jesus saying, I have not called you my slaves. I have called you my friends. And what a friend he was that Paul considered himself a bondservant, a slave to Jesus. Paul's attitude was, I'm a slave unto Jesus Christ. He's my master. But Jesus' perspective was, he calls us His friends. Calls us His friends. Bible says that we become children of God by faith. By the faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we place our faith in His shed blood on our behalf. That our sin was put on Him and His righteousness was put on us. James 2.23 says, And the Scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You know, before we become saved, we're at enmity with God. Whereas an enemy, God is considered our enemy. And we're at enmity with God. But Jesus loved us. He loves sinners. That even while we were yet sinners, God commended His love toward us. That we are with sin, that, that we may have life, that He died for the ungodly, that He could call us friends. Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well illustrates these not three non-negotiable truths about salvation. First, salvation comes only to those who recognize their desperate need for spiritual life that they do not have. Living water will be received only by those who realize they are spiritually thirsty. Fair of the mind, you know, I don't need God. They're not going to come to that realization. They must realize they're spiritually thirsty. Second, salvation comes only to those who confess they're a sinner before a holy God. Before this promiscuous woman could embrace a Savior, she had to acknowledge the full weight of her iniquity. That she was in sin. That she was immoral. Before someone realizes they're a sinner, they'll see no need for a Savior. They don't see any need or anything to be saved from. They don't see their sin. They don't see hell. They don't see the lake of fire, the place where they'll be eternally separated from fellowship with God. And third, salvation comes only to those who embrace Jesus Christ as their Messiah and sin bearer. After all, salvation is found nowhere else. Nobody else was able to offer salvation. Muhammad was able to offer salvation. There, they're just always trying to do their works, do their suicide bombings, do all these things to try to please their God. Buddha couldn't save anybody. Confucius couldn't. They all died and they're in their grave. But Jesus died and He rose again for us. There is a Muslim that trusted in Jesus as their Savior. And someone asks him, goes, why are you following Jesus and not Muhammad? Why not Allah? And he said, well, it was like this. I was on a road that became a fork. 
and I didn't know where to go. One man was dead. The other man was alive. So I asked the man that was alive which way to go. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. That no man comes unto the Father but through Him. And people sometimes look at us, why is that so exclusive? No, it's, it's a blessing that Jesus made a way. There was no way before. There was no way to salvation. But because of Jesus Christ, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible says, there is no other name under heaven whereby man must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I just want to ask you, if you don't know Jesus is your Savior, Come talk to me. Talk to me while we're having chili over there. Talk to me in the lobby. And we'll show you from the Bible. Explain more clearly. And put in your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Not in your works. Not in going to church. Not in getting baptized. But only through faith in Jesus Christ. We'll show you through the Scriptures. How you can know you have eternal life. That you could take of the water of life. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, seeing what You did here, that You came to a Samaritan woman where no other Jews would have any dealings with. But You broke that racial barrier. You became her Savior. We see in Acts, at first, the church was surprised when the Samaritans got saved as well. But they said, "If we see, we've witnessed, we see the light, that we see the effects of the Holy Spirit in their life, and accepted them into the community of faith." We thank you, Lord, for bringing us into one body, into the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're all sinners, whether we be Jew, Samaritan, Gentile. We need Jesus as our Savior. And we thank you, Lord, for being our Savior and showing this woman and showing us how we could take of the water of life. We ask you, Lord, that you would also bless the meal, the time of fellowship, the chili, the potluck, and just pray, Lord, that you would um, bless the time of fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.